Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorney, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's a new week, which is quite similar to the old week, but never mind, we press on. Really interesting discussion coming up uh, on the episode today about the Home Office. Pretty Patel in trouble about these criminal records being lost, but we try to work out, is there something about the Home Office which means things go wrong? We hear from Fiona Hamilton, crime editor of the Times, uh, plus two former Home Secretaries, uh, Jack Straw and Alan Johnson, and a former special advisor there as well, Sal Michelle. So that's coming up in our big thing in a moment. But first, our columnists panel... And of course, it's Monday, so it must be Libby Rachie. So it is Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Uh, now, I want to talk to you about something, first of all, that's got my goat going, as they say. Uh, I had an exchange over the weekend uh, with... Um, uh, the journalist and writer Sonny Hundle, who had been tweeting about how well the uh, NHS was doing with the uh, rollout of the vaccination uh, programme and saying that the NHS was doing it very well. And yes, he was he was thanking the NHS because um, uh, the government has bungled every other response to the pandemic. And I sort of made this point that there's this weird sort of blind worship of this thing called the NHS. So anything that goes well, praise be our wonderful NHS. Anything that goes badly, overworked staff, PPE missing, operations cancelled, you can't get through to your GP, uh, waiting lists soaring, non-COVID illnesses being uh, overlooked and ignored, then that's down to the terrible government. That's definitely not the lovely NHS's fault. Uh, am I wrong for thinking that we go a bit weird about the NHS, Libby? Um, yeah, I think the thing is that institutions are, are one thing and individuals who work and dedi- you know, care dedicatedly is another thing. And to be honest, most of the sharpest criticisms of the way the NHS is run always tend to come from friends and family I find inside it, you know, wasteful procurement and bureaucratic mm, management. Yeah. But of course... Some of this has come from government. I mean, they've set targets. They've underfunded it. Poor training policies. We've relied way too much, and this is a government uh, idea, uh, way too much on pinching doctors and nurses from poorer countries. Um, some people are angry that the lull in summer and autumn wasn't used to upskill people and help senior healthcare assistants to become nurses and so on, to free off the ICU nurses. I think we have to be clear-eyed about it. There are problems of organisation, you know, as 
in anywhere, the, the BBC and possibly even the Times, who knows? Uh, but uh, <laughs> the difficulty is that it's just no time to be moaning because there are people working incredibly hard who are incredibly pressured, uh, who are incredibly sort of frustrated and sad and grieving and traumatised. There's a good piece today um, by, by Claire Foges about this. Uh, and so it's difficult. It, it, you can't sort of say, oh, holy NHS evil government you know the government is mm. they're entangled together and a lot of the problems of the nhs are due to ideological government mismanagement so i it, i know it's, it's hard on your goat which it clearly gets but <laughs> I, think I think you're gonna to have to have a word with this goat and say look this well, is no, the way I, it's I suppose it was more i think if you're going to blame the government for taking the decisions which means there aren't enough staff and there are you know there are problems in the nhs then they must also get the credit for them that's my point really is they must also get the credit for when something does go well uh, in terms of oh, the rollout of the, the, vac- the, money, the vaccine programme. The, the money, the vaccination. I mean, I've, I've done my first shift at our local vaccinating centre. It's absolutely thrilling. I've got another one this week. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think that, that is good. And government has at least enabled it with a lot of money. But it's all recent. You know, it's, it's all yeah, what yeah, they're yeah. doing now in the pandemic. It, what they've done before, what governments have done before, has to be looked at uh, with, with a cold, dispassionate eye. Before we come to Rachel, what have you been when you, when you did your first shift? What were you doing, um, Libby? I'm fascinated about what goes on at these centres. I got to stand in a corridor and I got to say hello to people and push them down the right um, alley where the arrows went. And then when they came out again, uh, show them which was the way out and say, have a nice day. And it was absolutely delightful. Oh. <laughs> we were, so, we're fighting for shifts around here. I mean, there's another shift on Thursday. And I've actually had a, had a fight with my husband as to whose turn it is, because I love it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, you know, you really feel you're at the sharp end of an enormous machine, which sort of starts with scientists in laboratories and, you know, goes through all these productions and, and logistics and army trucks and people, giant fridges bringing things. And there you are at the very sharp end, asking an old lady to go down a corridor. It's just fabulous. It does sound. It does sound good, uh, Rachel. What do you make of this and the, this this sort of NHS good, government bad distinction that people like to make? That, that we um, we love the. It's just this idea of the NHS. You know, but we, we didn't clap or um, nobody praised the DWP in the Olympics, <laughs> even though you know that that helps people feed their children and put a roof over their head. And there's something about this cult of the NHS. And this isn't. To, in any way denigrate doctors and nurses who do you know extraordinary uh, jobs but it doesn't mean that as an institute it's sort of elevated to almost a state of a religion well i think there's a reason for that i think people have a very emotional connection with the nhs because it's where those sort of deepest personal moments happen where your children are born where people die where people are saved you know my son almost died from pneumonia as a tiny baby the nhs saved him and that gives you an incredibly powerful emotional connection which I mean how it, I, however infuriating the bureaucracy is and I'm sure that's you know there's definitely huge problems you look at that list of ridiculous things people who are wanting to vaccinate had to sign you know had to have had various checks for criminal records and goodness knows what a long long list of things they had to sign and forms they had to fill in but on the other hand, I think people have a very emotional connection with the NHS and it's something that's completely universal in a way that perhaps the welfare state or even the education system isn't. And politicians know that, you know, they're terrified of falling out with the NHS or being on the wrong side of the public on the NHS. That was, do you remember, um, 
David Cameron's famously airbrush poster. Well, uh, what was it? We'll cut the. We're not. We'll we'll, the it was save the, the NHS, NHS wasn't yeah. it? Um, they're not going to cut the NHS, and the Conservative Party's been absolutely going, falling over backwards to not make make clear they're not attacking the NHS because they know the power that it has. Um, and I think politics and other departments are much more intellectual, perhaps, as a policy, whereas the NHS is the most emotional, mm. um, you know, heartfelt policy area in government. Uh, and that means it is a bit irrational, actually. It is a bit like a religion. Um, but th- I don't think there's anything you can do about that. And I think a politician who stands up to that too much is going to be in huge trouble. Yeah, and, and the trouble is that any, any criticism of the NHS turns into, well, what, you probably want to sell it to Donald Trump now and fill it with <laughs> chlorinated chickens. You want the NHS run by chlorinated chickens. Um, and that's the, <laughs> but uh, I think that's you're the, right that you do have to be able to criticise the elements that are ridiculous, whether that's the bureaucracy or, you know, the um, too many managers, the inefficiency. There are huge problems with it, and it's an enormous 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 bureaucracy uh but and obviously there are going to be problems within that but i think there's something that people feel is very deeply associated with the best of britain as well that's why it was in that opening ceremony yeah, at the olympics yeah. wasn't it it's something people you know feel is something they can be proud of and patriotic about that's interesting yeah i think you're, you're, you're right there's that sort of um because good and bad things happen to us all in the nhs births and deaths and everything in between you have that attachment, which maybe you don't with the Department for Transport, uh, which may or may not get you to work on. Uh, exactly. Well, it's it's your t- most t- intense moments you come into contact with the NHS. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's interesting. Well, let's turn our attention to another wing of the, of the state, which isn't doing terribly well, uh, and that's of schools and when schools might go back. We were told uh, that this lockdown was only going to you know, be reviewed after a couple of weeks and then you know, maybe schools will be back after the... Uh, February half term, and now it might not be until Easter. You've got Robert Halfon, um, the Tory chairman of the Education Select Committee today, uh, call, uh, hauling in Gavin Williamson to the House of Commons to explain what on earth is going on. Time and time again, educate. we just seem to be making a mess of this question of education, Libby. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose... One thing which would help, uh, we think, is vaccinating teachers, but uh, I'm not sure how much that would help because actually it's the children mixing and then going home, which seems to have pushed up community transmission, which which is what is panicking the government. Uh, it's 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 incredibly difficult. I I wish they hadn't closed schools at the very beginning. Uh, I also wish that everyone had been able to see ahead as to how long this would go on and say, okay, we'll drop a year. You know that that's it. And then you have to give a certain amount of help to parents who really do need to go out to work, uh, which again has been very, very mixed. And I think the stress on parents is enormous. Um, I would, I would like just some quite sort of small imaginative things to be done. The BBC is doing quite well with its, um, online on television courses, but I think that any encouragement of private reading and study and research, you know, have a national prize for the best essay or poem or painting about something a child has found out for themselves. You know, a sense that education does not necessarily have to happen in classrooms, that it happens to you all through your life. The very fact of living through this pandemic is a kind of education. I think, I think we need to 
somehow philosophically think more broadly about it. But practically, I don't know what government should do. I just don't. Uh, I mean, I think the testing in schools was a pretty poor idea because those tests are so unreliable, the innova ones. But mm. uh, t- vaccinating teachers, there's a call for, but uh, I don't think it's the teachers that would be spreading it. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's a huge dilemma. I don't, I don't think anyone really knows what to do. But I'd like to see some kind of broad sense that everything that happens to us is educational and that applies to children as well. Yes, yeah, one of the massive frustrations, particularly the first lockdown, I, I with my daughter, was the amount of work she, and effort she put into some things. And then, you know, that was it. It, it just sort of disappeared mm. into the ether. There was no feedback or they moved on. No you know, exams, no. Yeah. yeah but but it, was, it was just sort of, you know, well, you've done that thing now. and We don't want to see it. We just want to know that you've done it. and We'll move on to the next thing. You're right. Maybe just uh, uh, focusing on a few you know, by this point, we're going to have done two or three big things that will stick with you forever. It seems much better than sort of just plodding along as if they're in school when they're when they're not ready. What do you think about this, Rachel? Any sympathy for Gavin Williamson this morning? Well, not really, I'm afraid, because I think that he's just not made the decisions that he needs to make. So if you think about the exam situation, children still don't know how they're going to be awarded their grades in the summer. Teachers still don't know what they're supposed to do. There's talk of some kind of semi-exam, but how's it going to work? How does it relate to the rest of the coursework? How can it possibly be fair? And it just feels as if children are always at the bottom of the queue. So... um I agree with Libby about vaccinating teachers. And I would say, if necessary, vaccinate children. And I know at the moment the vaccine's not been tested on children. But um, when we interviewed John Bell a couple of weeks ago, he said, you know, that would be clear within a a few weeks whether or not that was safe. Uh, And even if that means, um, you know, people like me going further down the queue, then so be it. I'd much rather the children got back quicker. If that means vaccinating Mm, children before older, you know, um, workers, then so be it. And that's just got to be a priority, I think, rather than always, always children seem to be at the bottom of the list of things that matter. Yeah, so it's, it's, yeah, it's just a depressing situation. So, right, so we've we've done the NHS, we've done education. Let's focus <laughs> on on the positive, uh, Libby. Let's talk about sailors. Yes, I I just thought that it, because Tim Severin, the great explorer, had, had, had died recently, and I was on the first sailing trials of his extraordinary sort of sewn together with coconut rope and greased with mutton fat ship, which sailed from Oman to China. Um, 40 years ago when I was a young reporter and I managed to get out there to to be on its first trip out. Uh, I just, I, I reread the book and I read about the doldrums. You know, those are the spaces around the equator where no wind blows and how sailors down the ages have been stuck in the doldrums. I mean, so hard. Tim's ship was stuck there running out of water, running out of charcoal, you know, for over a month. Um, and it's a good metaphor for where we are now. We're in doldrums because what happens there is a breeze will suddenly pipe up and you think, all right, we're off. Yeah, yes, 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 yeah. Vaccination's coming. Hooray. And then it all dies down again. You know, there's no delivery or whatever. And um, at one stage, Tim Severin said that he hid the chart from everybody in the crew because he didn't want them to know that they were still basically in the same place as three weeks ago and getting nowhere. And I just thought, you know, thinking about sailors' patience in the doldrums, down the centuries is something we could all think about a bit now because this doldrum it it does get Mm. us done there's no point pretending I mean I get extreme lows I think we all get extreme lows then you have to say right okay there's no such thing as a permanent lack of wind anywhere on the sea there's no such thing as a permanent lockdown forever it will end somehow it will 
And that's a, that's a message we can all take. Do you know why we've been chatting? Paul has been in touch with a poem that he's written uh, about exactly what we were just discussing, the NHS. Our NHS, your father was Bevan, hallowed be thy name. A cult you've begun, you've become, so reform can't be done in Erith or even down in Devon. Give us this day our <laughs> daily crisis and forgive us mispractices as we troll those who say anything against us and lead us not into debt but deliver us from mrsa for you have become a religion giving the left excuses to blame tories forever and ever amen uh, so thank you very much for that paul that sort of sums up in in, in poetry uh what essentially i was talking about um, libby your column is absolutely it's just nice today it's one of those things that sometimes you just need oh yeah you're right this isn't going to last forever this is going to last forever so you obviously can read uh, libby's uh, column today uh, rachel any clues yet as to what you're going to be writing your column on tomorrow I'm trying to do employment rights and what the government's going to do on that. Oh, yes, that's a big, uh, big issue. And, and um, Past Imperfect, your Times Radio show and podcast, who's on this week? Yeah, we've got Jacqueline Gold, who's the CEO of Anne Summers. And what's absolutely fascinating is she was sexually abused as a child and she has now made a career, basically, out of making sex fun. And she talks about both of those things and but particularly how she just almost deliberately or subconsciously or, or consciously set out to turn a negative experience of her childhood into a positive and she says you know success is the best form of revenge uh, and that that sense of taking something that was the most traumatic thing in her childhood and turning it into her career basically and something that turning something yeah. that um, encouraging people to have more sex and have, make it fun and liberating women in the bedroom she's talks about um so it's really fascinating it's a very powerful and moving interview again actually that's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there and of course you can read them both in the times every week just get yourself a Times subscription go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times red box and sign up now and as a bonus right now you get your first month free coming up next on the podcast why do things always go wrong at the home office Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. A weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, Anne Summers CEO Jacqueline Gold talks candidly about her parents' divorce and how she coped with a shocking period of childhood sexual abuse. They say the best form of revenge is success, and I believe that. It was just turning something negative into a positive. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Jacqueline Gold, in her own words. Now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Redbox Podcast. Now, why does everything go wrong at the home office? Remember these? I did not to overrule him. I did not overrule Derek. Did you Lewis. threaten to overrule him? I took advice on what I could or could not did do. Did you threaten and to I overrule him, Mr. Howard? It was a failure. I've acknowledged it's a failure, and it must be got right. Home Office Immigration Department is not fit for puppets. I want to apologise unreservedly to the House, as I have to my constituents, for wrongly claiming for the cost of films alongside my broadband and cable connection. The illegal immigrant who cannot be deported because, and I am not making this up, because he had a pet cat. We don't have targets for removals, but you did. I, have, I didn't hear the testimony. I'm not sure what shape that might be in. But if you're asking me are the numbers of people we expect to be removed, um, that's not how we operate. So this is a coding error that has basically led to a number of records relating to offences, arrest records and individual people um, that have potentially been lost. Wow, that uh, lot takes you back, doesn't it? So there you heard uh, Conservative Home Secretary Michael Howard getting Paxmaned on Newsnight. Uh, you also had uh, Labour's Charles Clark under fire in the House of Commons over losing criminals. Uh, John Reid on the BBC talking about the Home Office being not fit for purpose after he replaced Charles Clark when he was sacked. Uh, Jackie Smith quitting as Home Secretary over putting porn films on expenses. Uh, and then you heard Theresa May, actually she did make up that story about an asylum seeker's cat. That turned out not to be true. Of course, Amber Rudd, who got it wrong on deportation targets, and then resigned. And most recently, Pretty Patel, uh, just last week on Good Morning Britain, explaining how she came to lose 400,000 criminal records. So what we want to look at this morning is, is it just inevitable that things go wrong at the Home Office? Is there something about the Home Office that makes it go wrong. In a moment, we'll hear from Jack Straw, former Labour Home Secretary, and Alan Johnson, uh, who is also uh, Home Secretary, and Salma Shah, who was a special advisor when Sajid Javid was uh, the Home Secretary. But first, let's hear from Fiona Hamilton, the Times crime editor, who broke that story about the Home Office losing those criminal records. I spoke to her just earlier on this morning and asked what was lost and what the chances are of getting them back. So the issue with the missing criminal records is that the police national computer, which records arrest, caution and conviction data, so as such is critically important to the police, software is applied to it uh, on a weekly basis on what you might call a housekeeping 
um, weeding out mission, which is that depending on the nature of an offence, uh, how long ago it was and the age of the offender, material does get routinely deleted. And this software is applied to do that. The problem was that back in November, defective code was introduced by the engineers who were carrying out this work. It took until January 10 to kick in, but when it did kick in, it automatically started deleting records. Now, making matters worse, the PNC is automatically connected to the DNA database and the fingerprints database, which are both separate and it started deleting records from them as well. In all, uh, there may be up to, or in all, there might be just over 400,000 records that have disappeared. And what are we talking, how, I mean, obviously there's a difference between, you know, routine things which are collected, which probably nobody needs anymore, and what could end up being crucial evidence in future cases. So how, how serious are the records that have been deleted? Well, obviously, offence records, arrest records, caution records are pretty important. But you might think that you would that that kind of information would be held on different databases. What the National Police Chiefs Council has already raised concern about is, in particular, DNA profiles and potential missed opportunities. So, when uh, police uh, go to a crime scene and they collect evidence from a crime scene, they automatically are able to sweep that evidence through the DNA and fingerprint databases and see if they can come up with a match. Now, that doesn't have to be about convicted offenders. It can also be about people who have been arrested before, but um, they were released because A, they were innocent, or B, because there wasn't enough evidence to charge them. And it's possible that those people might come up on a future crime scene. But of course, if you don't have the DNA uh, information to flag up, then you uh, potentially lose that opportunity to bring a criminal to justice. Now, all this feels a little bit familiar, as we just heard from the um, the montage of previous Home Secretaries getting into trouble and Priti Patel trying to explain uh, what's going on at PMQs last week. Uh, Keir Starmer was pressing Boris Johnson to answer questions on it, and Boris Johnson's answer was basically, I have answered that question. The answer is, we don't know. Um, to, to what extent is this just what happens at the Home Office? It's a big organisation and things go wrong. Or is, or is there something sort of unique about the Home Office, about the fact that, you know, down the years, if it's not uh, losing criminals, it's losing their records or losing their passport or losing passports, whatever it might be. Is there something about the Home Office, which means it's slightly prone to this sort of thing happening? Well, I think in terms of data, and, and if I speak from the police perspective, one of the, the key issues that um, many people have told me since I wrote this story is that the uh, the technology they're using is is so old. One former chief constable described it like old tin. So many of them felt that actually this kind of data loss was probably inevitable. Now, we should say that... Um, this data loss is about somebody making a human error, the Home Office say, that it was about introduction of defective software. Um, but there does seem to be a, a far wider problem, which is that the type of technology that police IT is based on is, is simply completely out of date. So Tom Windsor, who is Her Majesty's in Inspector of Constabulary, told MPs in the wake of this story that it wasn't unusual when he accessed the police national computer to see a black screen with a, a green blinking icon, which sort of takes you back to the very <laughs> earliest days of computer. Computing. So there definitely is a wider issue here. 
and where does this story go next? I mean, there, does, there seems to be a bit of political pressure on uh, Priti Patel, but so far, at least, she seems to have uh, come through. Although I thought it was notable that Boris Johnson said it promised his questions last week. He'd been briefed on it by the policing minister and not the Home Secretary. Uh, well, where does it go next? Can Priti Patel, uh, you know, it used, this may well have been the sort of thing that Home Secretary had to resign over, but um, where does this story go next? Well, Kit Malthouse, the policing minister, has has been um, upfront on this one and certainly insulating his Home Secretary. He said that they're doing a huge uh, exercise to, first of all, determine what exactly has, has been lost. And then they'll go through a process to see how and whether they can get it back. Now, there will be some data backed up. There will be some material they can get from elsewhere. So I suppose we're really all waiting to see what the next step is. If they say they can get the majority of these records back, perhaps we all move on a bit. But if the, it does turn out that a lot of the records are missing permanently, then it will get... A, it, then it will become a bigger story and there will be further questions to answer because you do then get back to what are the police missing out on and are there missed opportunities for um, investigations. Well, that's Fiona Hamilton now, our crime editor, talking through what's gone wrong this time round on Pretty Patel's Watch. Uh, but let's uh, up next, we'll take a look back over the history of the Home Office a bit more. We'll hear from two former Home Secretaries, Jack Straw and Alan Johnson, and from Salma Shah, a former Conservative Special Advisor to Sajid Javid when he was Home Secretary. Uh, that's next on Times Radio. On digital radio, on the web, and via the Times Radio app, Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Yeah, Matt Chorley here on Times Radio, taking a look at what goes wrong at the Home Office. Well, I spoke to Jack Straw, who was Tony Blair's first Home Secretary, uh, lasting from 1997 to 2001. He managed to escape the montage of doom at the beginning of this item. Uh, But I began by asking him, did it really feel like he got off lightly while he was at the Home Office? Well, it felt like that for the first 20 months when I I, um, led something of a charmed life. And I kept thinking, this is a charmed life. And then everything uh, went wrong pretty rapidly, including in June, May, June 1999, uh, the whole of the passport system collapsed. Uh, A passport agent had just been left to run itself on the grounds that there was no politics in it, you know, it was washing its own face. And the result of that was that there was insufficient supervision. And we didn't realise that they had embarked upon a massive change programme without putting in sufficient resilience. But anyway, I mean, and one or two, you know, one or two other things like that. There was also uh, the appalling uh, weekend when I'd first been phoned on the Saturday, indeed, while out cycling with my wife. So I, uh, my detectives came, af- who were following me, found, found me and said, you've got to talk to the office. And the, the Belgians were going mad because they'd arrested a thousand rioting English fans in Charleroi and we had to arrange to get them back. I knew near my cycling shorts, sorting that out. I was woken up very early the next morning to the news that, that uh, 58 asylum seekers had been found dead in a lorry uh, at, at Dover as it was being checked with obviously... Uh, great similarities with the recent very tragic and terrible case. And then you're faced with having to uh, make, uh, in my case, two back-to-back statements in the House of Commons and the allegations uh, that, in a sense, it was my fault uh, that these asylum seekers uh, were, or or the perpetrators, the the, the traffickers, had not been intercepted earlier before they died, and also my fault that a thousand uh, football 
uh, unruly football fans had rioted in Charlotte, and you get that. But th there is a, f a fundamental reason why Home Office stories hit the headlines in a way that other uh, departments don't quite get, get in the headlines to the same uh, degree. And that is that the Home Office is dealing with the hard end of the state, about the security of the state. And moreover, whilst in other government departments there is broadly an alignment of interest between the government department and, for example, the health service, doctors, nurses and patients, or education, uh, uh, teachers and parents and, and children. There is no alignment of interest between uh, the major customers of the Home Office uh, and the Home Office. The major customers of the Home Office are criminals. They're people who are trying to get into the country and you are trying to stop them getting into the tree. Uh, although sometimes, obviously in both cases, the criminals uh, simply have allegations that they're innocent. The people who uh, you're trying to stop coming into the country or deport uh, turn out to also to be innocent uh, and the system has made a mistake. So that's why you you have this clash. You think sometimes there's a tension as well where uh, home secretaries who go out and say we're going to be tough on this, that, and the other, um, it all sort of comes back to bite them in the end because you are dealing with bad people doing bad things often, or you know a big sprawling empire of government agencies often doing their own thing. If you if you stick your head above the parapet and make lots of noise about what you're doing, it tends to come back and, and haunt you a bit. Well, if you make ridiculous promises which are unrealistic, you'll certainly uh, get bitten in the leg for sure. And it will come back to haunt you. I think most Home Secretaries get that uh, and are careful. Some, I'm afraid, Pretty Patel is a, a prime example, uh, boast over promise. And then they find that reality sets in. What about the tension? There's obviously a lot of tension between sort of political priorities and the civil service being asked to deliver it on it. How, if you're the Home Secretary, do you make sure you've got your civil servants on side? They uh, depend in terms of their sense of purpose on what kind of leadership they're given. If they're honoured uh, and uh, valued, and that's the message that comes through to them, including in the, in the newspapers, on a radio or television, they'll do their job better. If they are constantly abused, as Pretty Patel appears to have been doing, then people will work without enthusiasm, uh, and uh, then it's the Home Secretary who will suffer. And the question, just finally, the question of when someone should resign, because uh, of course, if some uh, criminal records are deleted, it's not. Pretty Patel who presses the button to delete them. If if uh, people are wrongly deported, it's not Amber Rudd who puts them on the plane. It's not uh, you know Charles Clark who lost who personally mislaid the foreign criminals. But it, uh, where does the responsibility lie uh, when things go wrong? And when should the Home Secretary resign? And when should they they you know say oh it's it's not my fault? It's the agency or whatever. They're much more likely to be forced to resign if they blame somebody else. That's a very good point there. So that was Jack Straw, who was the first new Labour Home Secretary. Uh, we can now speak to the last, Alan Johnson. Uh, hi, Alan. Hi, how are you, Matt? I'm uh, very good. I'm uh, very good. Thanks for joining us. And Salma Shah was Conservative Special Advisor when Sajid Javid was Home Secretary in Theresa May's government. Hi, Salma. Hello. 
Uh, Alan, can I start with you? Because uh, you, you managed to avoid being um, uh, forced to resign, mainly because the, the, the great British electorate um, relieved you of your, your duties when you were Home Secretary. Uh, uh, before before you know events could catch up from your experience as as being home secretary and when you're asked to do that job is it with some trepidation because things have a habit of going wrong no it's it's one of the great offices of state i mean you you know you get to foreign secretary or home secretary or chancellor uh, or prime minister and 11 home secretaries incidentally have gone on to become prime ministers so it can't be that much of a bed of nails no it's a huge uh, honor but it is the most difficult. I did five cabinet jobs and it was by far the most difficult. Now, Jack, of course, was in a different position because Jack dealt with the Home Office before prisons and criminal justice were taken away from the Home Office. So part of that John Reed comment about the Home Office not being fit for purpose, which I didn't agree with, incidentally, but but it was unwieldy in the sense that prisons and criminal justice on top of policing, on top of uh, uh, counter-terrorism on top of immigration, you know that was a handful. It's much different now. Much, I mean, it's a you know it's a walk in the park compared to those days for people like me and and uh, Pretty Patel. And incidentally, historically, because it was the first department ever set up, seventeen eighty two, that and our, and the Foreign Office, the Foreign Office dealt with everything abroad, and the Home Office dealt with everything <laughs> in this country. So it did uh, deal with factories, mines, shops. The census, cruelty to animals. Up until 1974, every pub and hotel in Carlisle was run by the Home Office because they were nationalised in the First World War as a kind of experiment to stop social drinking by uh, munitions workers. So whatever uh, the three issues that the Home Office deals with now, far less than the issues that Michael Howard or Jack Straw or some of the other people in your montage had to deal with. And that's because, as you were saying, like prisons and probation, but were hived off, and the Ministry of Justice uh, was created. So just explain that. So, uh, when you were there at the Home Office with um, Sajid Javid, it was obviously off the back of Theresa May was seen as one of the great survivors because she, I think, she became the longest-serving um, Home Secretary, uh, in part by disappearing for long periods. Uh, what was your <laughs> experience when when you arrived at the Home Office? So we we obviously came in um, off the back of Amber Rudd, who had had um, the issues with the, the the numbers around Windrush, and so you know anybody who was going to hunker down and resolve that um, was going to be in a, in a good position. Um, <laughs> my general experience is this: that the Home Office is where all the worst bits of Whitehall are collected and stored. And I've done four uh, departments and um, I can honestly tell you that the Home Office has absolutely no fun in it whatsoever. There is nothing nice about working at the Home Office. It is just, you know, by virtue of the subject matter that's there. And even with sort of probation and prisons hived off, you know, a morning in terms of reading your briefing papers could be, um, you know, domestic abuse. It could be terrorism. It could be, you know, ISIS fighters. It could be, um, you know, Ill- illegal immigration. And that's all before lunchtime. And, you know, I can't, as much as I loved all the other departments I worked in as well, I, I can honestly say there was absolutely no sense of joy um, in the Home Office. It's a really, really tough job. 
And Alan, is that part partly as Jack slightly touched on it? You're basically dealing, you know, if you're if you're educated secretary, you're dealing with teachers who are nice people and they're helping children, which is a nice thing to do. Uh, if you're even if you're, if you're transport secretary, train drivers are, are cooperative and people want to go on the trains, yeah. whatever it might be. The people you're dealing with at the Home Office are not terribly cooperative in the uh, the targets that you might set yourself. No, I mean, Jack's line is really good. He used to say that to me when I was Home Secretary. He was the first Labour Home Secretary. I was the last, or I hope it's not the last per se, but I was uh, I was at the end of that period. But here's the difference. I mean, when things are, when you can see things succeeding, then it makes going into work a lot more pleasant and makes people job, people's jobs are present. Crime was coming down. Crime had fallen. Domestic violence had fallen by 67% between 1997 and when I was Home Secretary, crime was on a downward spiral, more police numbers than ever, PCSOs uh, introducing community policing big time. And all of that was going was going very well. Uh, and so that gave you the impetus that was really, you know, built for me by my, by my predecessors. So, I, you know, I don't agree on, on, on that aspect, although I think it was the Department of Culture, Media and Sport was known as the Ministry of Fun. And uh, and as your contributor rightly says, the Home Office has never been mistaken for that. The crucial thing about this case, though, Pretty Patel, I mean, you went through there, Amber Rudd, Charles Clark. You could have mentioned David Blunkett. Someone got into the grounds of, uh, of Buckingham Palace and David Blunkett uh, almost had to resign over that. What he did resign over was something different. Amber Rudd and Charles Clark, what happened to them was far less serious than this loss of uh, uh, of police records. Priti Patel has not even made a statement to Parliament on this yet. She did one pulled clip. You quoted a bit from that. The rest of it has been left to Kit Malthouse. I mean, this is incredible. You know, if this was as... Um, as uh, uh, Herbert Morrison once said, the Home Office is the corridors of the Home Office are paved with dynamite. Pretty Patel's way round it just seems to be to just push things on to her Minister of State, and she I seems th- to be getting away with it, which is that, incredible. That, that's the, I, I have to say, I think that's slightly unfair. In that, you know, as Matt pointed out with this discussion with Jack Straw, you know, losing records and sort of decision making, um, you know, on a particular issue are two different things. You know, she was not operationally responsible for that. And it's one of the difficulties of the Home Office is that you sit as Home Secretary and make the policy decisions. But the operational control does not belong to you. You have to put your faith in the officials to do that. And I think Jack was totally right when he said that, you know, you do require, you know, a lot of leadership because the officials in the Home Office are completely unique, I think, in comparison to officials anywhere else in Whitehall. Because of the subject matter, they hold things really closely. Um, They really feel a personal sense of responsibility and a sense of duty towards the things that they have to acquit. (laughs) But, you know, the the operational separation from policy is an important thing. Charles Charles Clark should never have been sacked under what you've just said, because it was a very similar thing about records. But uh, hang on. On this, it's nothing to do with with officials hiding things away. That we were told originally that 150,000 records had gone. This is a story, incident. we have to thank Fiona at the Times for. Uh, we were told 150,000 records had been deleted. We now know it's over 400,000. We were told they were people that were arrested but not charged. We now know there were 30,000 people whose records were to be held indefinitely 
which suggests it wasn't people who were arrested but not charged. I mean, and yet the Home Secretary still hasn't gone to Parliament. Now, you can make the argument, of course, that officials are responsible and someone else is responsible and not me. But you can't make an argument that the person in the hot seat, the Home Secretary, should not be facing this up and going to Parliament. Just as Amber Rudd did, by the way, before she was sacked, just as Charles Clark did before he was sacked, just as every Home Secretary that's faced this kind of dilemma has done. So just finally then, do, you, do we think that Pritchard Patel survives this, in a word, Alan? Uh, she'll survive up until the reshuffle when she's moved. This follows on from the ministerial code issue with Sir Alex Allens. It, it follows on from breaching collective responsibility by that uh, clip where she said that, you know, what Boris Johnson did was wrong. She would have... She would have closed the borders. It follows on from numerous problems with Priti Patel. So at the right time, she'll go. She won't be the 12th Home Secretary uh, to go on to become <laughs> Prime Minister. Um, and what about you, Salma? Um, I don't know. She's, she survived um, quite well <laughs> against a lot of issues that have come up. So I'm not sure I'd totally bet against her. Um, even though I, I, I see, you know, what Alan says is um, <laughs> <laughs> detailed. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times Radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box Podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. Mm-hmm.